Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey there, it's Jeremy Scheinwald, host of the VFA Smart People Should Build Things podcast. I'm here today with Jess Brondo-Davidoff. She's the founder of Admittedly, that's admitted.ly, which is an online platform that's helping high school students make college choices and learn about all aspects of the college admissions process. To say that Admittedly burst onto the scene is an understatement. In a year and a half, Admittedly has 127,000 student users and counting. This growth is no doubt due to Jess being an experienced entrepreneur in the education field. Shortly after graduating from Princeton, she launched The Edge in College Preparation, an elite test prep and admissions consulting firm which had offices in New York, London, Rio, South Florida, and Buenos Aires, a firm which she left after seven years to launch admittedly, but one that still exists and serves its clientele today. We're thrilled to have Jess Brondo Davidoff with us on the VFA podcast. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So Jess, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So I used, I downloaded and and, uh, and used admittedly, admitted.ly, admittedly yesterday. Uh, I went through some of the college uh, tests mm-hmm. and uh, to try and determine what college would be applicable to me, a 39-year-old man who has two <laughs> college degrees. Uh, but I wanted to see what it, what, it, what, would, what it would spit out for me and how accurate it was. Uh, I went through a couple of quizzes, like I said, and um, I had to give up because... <laughs> Uh, it asks all sorts of questions like, what are your favorite, uh, you know, who, who would, what kind of actor would you be on this show or what kind of musician would you be? And, and, uh, and ultimately, I didn't know any of the, I didn't know enough of the people to make good judgments, uh, hadn't heard of some of the artists, etc. Which led me to a question, which is, how do you, how do you stay current with a, uh, I guess it start, admittedly starts with eighth graders, I believe? Yeah, the so we have students in eighth grade uh, going into ninth grade. So right now, all the kids going into high school. So how do you make sure that you are current, not just with the quizzes, which probably you can manage, but but with how they use technology and the like? Uh, that's a great question um, because when I was first creating the quizzes, I was putting in references to things that I actually watch and the music that I know. Um, and when we do our user testing, which is one of the biggest components of why I think our product resonates with the high school student audience, we got so much feedback from them saying, you know, what's friends or you know right. all these shows that that seem to be very culturally relevant to to the masses aren't necessarily relevant to them so when we got that feedback that's where we bring students in we get um, some recommendations from them about what they are watching and every quarter we actually do a massive survey of all of our users um, 
Each quarter is a little bit different. We'll ask about trends in pop culture, what they're watching, what they're listening to, what type of apps they have, just so that we know what's going on. Um, and we use a lot of that information in the product development. So you're constantly redesigning the, the, the quizzes to be more increasingly relevant with time. Yeah. And you can see that through the way people click on things. Um, you can see what is potentially irrelevant if no one's choosing it. Exactly. And yeah. I guess, I think when, you know, you, we, we talked briefly before this, um, you were saying that I guess the clicks started to show you that you had to move online in a hurry. Um, when you start, what, when, did you, when did you start this? Well, we, we met a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when did you start this and how much have things changed in terms of the platform since then? So I had the initial idea for this in October of 2012, uh, which is a while back. Um, and at the time, what I wanted to do was take this curriculum that I had built up um, over the years working one-on-one -on -one with students and be able to leverage technology so that um, I could automate the process um, and deliver it to students in all locations at all different budgets. Um, but, and, but also deliver value. And so we, I brought on my, my first developer in June of 2013, and that's when it started becoming more of a reality. Um, and so that's when we started having these day-long product meetings, kind of me explaining what was going on in my head, the curriculum that I was using, and what my ultimate vision was. Um, and that's when we first started developing it. We did a, a beta test in the fall of 2013, and then when we went live with the product in uh, early 2014. So it's been about a year and a half. So let me uh, let me even back up and and ask: When you're developing a you know technology, how do you how does someone who you know I, maybe I'm incorrect? I, I don't know. What was your educational background? I know you went to Princeton, but what was what was the? I was uh, public policy and so, international affairs. So that doesn't prep you for <laughs> software management, no. software development, which. To me, I, I'm willing to admit I find it be a little bewildering um, myself. Uh, we've developed a, a back end for our company, and, and, and I always, I was like, I don't know how fast this should be moving or slow this should be moving or whether this should be right today or tomorrow. How, do you, how does someone with no experience manage software development? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. Um, so it's definitely not something that I learned in school. It's definitely not something that I was familiar with from a previous job. So for me, I was just a voracious reader. I read every blog out there, and I talked to a million people um, about what the best practices were, what the different uh, methodologies were of, of managing a product team, and what expectations were on um, deliverables and how fast it would move. But ultimately, what I think is really important for someone who's not technical is to really, when they hire someone who's technical, to trust them. Because if you trust that person when they tell you, you know, this feature is a three-week-long feature to build, or this is something I can do in four hours, that is something where if you're constantly questioning that person, then the relationship's not going to work. Um, and I, I equate it to like working with a contractor, and you know you might not understand why something costs so much, but you hire the contractor who you trust because you, at that point, are putting your faith that they're not going to be lying to you. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> did you have a? Did you have? How how soon after the idea came about? You know, did you hire that? programmer and, and, and really get moving? Uh, well, it was a while. So 
I at the time, so I, the idea came to me in October of 2012. I was part of an incubator in New York called uh, First Growth, and. I joined First Growth. It's a very low maintenance, uh, low key incubator. They meet once a month for six months. Um, not anything uh, kind of intensive. But the reason why I did that was because I had been running a small business. It was a very successful small business, but it wasn't software, it wasn't a startup, it wasn't high growth. And I wanted to understand what these terms were what the expectations were and what I needed to know before embarking on that. So I did that. That's what really got me sort of my associate's degree, if you will, and made me comfortable with going into this field. And then at the end of that program um, in May, that's when I started putting out the feelers for developers and started interviewing them. And I hired uh, Seth in uh, the middle, the beginning of June. So it took about a month to hire him. Okay, and then June 2013, you're developing the platform that becomes Admittedly. How long did it take for you between June 2013 and go live date? Uh, so we went live with our beta product September 25th of 2013. To be precise. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <because> <laughs> we're going we to fact check that. We have anniversaries. Okay. That's nice. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so yeah. So it took it took a full uh, three and a half, three and a bit months mm -hmm. uh, before we we felt comfortable with something. And even at that point, the matching that we were doing in terms of matching students based on their questions to schools was really just not where it needed to be. Um, and we're constantly improving the matching on the site, so um, it's always a work in progress there. But it was a really long development cycle. Okay, and in. So in beta mode, for those who maybe don't know the lingo, <laughs> what 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 happens in beta? I mean, how 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 broad is the release? How many users do you have do you have using? Um, admittedly, at that point. Uh, so our beta. So basically, the purpose of that was to test um, the product and put it out in the market to watch actual user potential users um, go through the the platform without instructing them and just to get a sense of the data um, and whether or not we were building something that students would like. Um, so we, at that point, had about 1,000 students um, in our beta, which I thought was pretty representative. We had students from, at that point, it was about 13 different states, um, a mixture of public and private. And um, we were very open with the students in the beta, saying, you know, check with a guidance counselor before before using any of this. We're, we're get early days. Any feedback is welcome. But we, uh, we, we learned a ton. Um, and a lot of those students from the beta ended up becoming our student ambassadors, which uh, which was great. And then when does when does you know when do you get out of beta and you just launch this whole when 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 was that that you really went live? So we went live in January, and January is kind of a transitional period um, from a seasonality time point. Um, so that fall, the bulk of our students using the product were high school seniors who were working on finalizing their list of schools to which they were applying that January. So then all their applications were due in January, um, and so January is when you kind of have a big drop-off of high school seniors and um, an onboarding of high school juniors who our early days and kind of starting to think about the process. So we didn't do a big splashy launch then because only the super high overachievers are, are working on this in January. So we we did more of a softer launch then and a bigger launch in uh, March for spring break when a lot of kids go on college visits. 
And so I looked at the, I looked at your website, you know, 127,000, and I looked again today, and the number was growing, and that's amazing. Um, give a, can you give a sense of how, was that growth just slow and st- I mean fast and steady? Was <laughs> it were there were there a couple of inflection points where things just went nuts? You're like, okay, something big happened there, and suddenly we got 15,000 new users. Or how, how does it? How do you just describe the growth? Yeah. So. The growth was pretty pretty steady for all of uh, January through July of um, 2014. Uh, we were growing pretty consistently about 10 to 20 percent uh, per week um, during that period, which was great for us. And you know, starting off at a thousand users, and then w- where we saw our big peak. Uh, in a user growth was in September, October, and November of 2014, and that's where we had explosive growth. October, um, we got 38,000 new students. Wow! Um, so that was huge for us. Um, and in October, that that was kind of a big month for us. So a lot of our growth is definitely um, organic. So we do have this really great student ambassador program, um, but we also do a lot of outreach to guidance counselors and. Uh, we had just come back from a pretty big conference um, called NACAC, which is the National Association of College Admissions Counselors, where we had a big event that we hosted for counselors. We got tons of their email addresses, and we really get, got the message out there. So that was really successful for us um, from just a, a non-online, a, a kind of a more of a traditional marketing. So should we expect another, <clears throat> pardon me, another 38, another 50,000 people coming in September, October, to say, no, no, oh, yeah. December this year? Yeah. Okay, good. No, that's a, yeah. that's, that's a remarkable growth. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, how many, how, what, give a sense of the, of, the, of, the, of the market. I mean, how many students could you be speaking to um, if you hit every single one of them, which of course we'll, you'll do. Yeah, so I mean, there are 16.6 million high school students. So obviously it's a dream for everyone that all of them will eventually go to college. So one day I hope that all 16.6 million will be using Admittedly to find out where they should be going and what are the steps that they should be taking in order to, to find their path. Um, so where we are now though is because when you are launching a startup, you want to be focused, you can't be everything to everyone. So we knew we couldn't be an ideal solution for every single high school student out there. So our focus is really on students who already know they want to go to college and who already have an idea that they're not going to necessarily just go to the community college right in their county and they want to explore other opportunities. So in that target demographic, there's about 10,000, sorry, 10 million uh, students in grades 9 through 12. Um, and when we initially launched, the product was really targeted more for seniors. Now we have a really great mix of 8th through 12th graders, and about 38% of our of our students are actually not seniors, which is great because we have students coming on earlier, and the earlier they start thinking about these things, the better off they'll be when it comes to application time. So I, I want to I'm, – I'm curious about the decision. You're running a successful firm. Um, you've got offices around the world – you're serving people. You're happy with it. You know the idea. You know the, how was, how did you decide to, how, how did you do that risk assessment to walk away? Were there people saying don't do it? You know you're enjoying what you're doing, and you know it's risky to walk away from something that's moving. Um, you know were the people spurring you on? Tell us about that 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 decision. I believe you're the first person. You're the, you're the second person on our on our podcast who's who's um, 
who's walked away from something that was really moving well. Um, uh, and that's Alexander Wilkins Wilson walked away from guilt to start Glam Squad. Yeah. Um, so tell us about that thought process. Uh, yeah, I mean, a million people thought I was crazy because that business was doing so well. I mean, I was personally charging $15,000 for a college admissions counseling package or $500 plus per hour for SAT and ACT prep tutoring, um, which is pretty lucrative and uh, really, really hard to <laughs> say no to when you know that your startup salary is probably going to be closer to zero. Um but I think the the big impetus for me of leaving Edge and starting admittedly was the impact level. And when you're looking at Edge, which is a one-on-one, in-person-based company, um, the amount of impact you can have is always going to be limited by my time and by the time of the tutors I had, number one. Number two... The, the obviously with those price points, the clientele that we had were at the super, super high end of the market. And those are definitely students who are shooting for the stars and it's at the, the Ivy League level, you never know. There's not a single school that's gonna be a safety school no matter what your scores are and no matter what your background is. Um, but what I really wanted to do is help the students who couldn't have access to that, they couldn't afford that, and they didn't even have access to a guidance counselor because that's where you really get to make these huge leaps for the student. Um, and also, I think for me, doing something for seven and a half years was, I was at a point where it wasn't challenging anymore, and I really wanted to do something that put me outside of my comfort zone. Um, that could not only challenge me, but utilize the skills that I had built up over those years and um, allow more students to to get the benefit from them. And, and how do you leave one business in, in, in good shape running confidently in order to make that transition to the second one? Um, well, so we definitely had to make some changes with that business. We... Um, at the time, we had offices in New York, in London, Buenos Aires, South Florida, um, and Rio. And so I definitely was managing the majority of the New York office um, and also part of the London office as well. I was going there several times a year um, because I had lived there for two years and, and built that office from the ground up. So when I made the leap, I knew I, I had to assess what my my capacity was and I knew I wasn't going to be able to really do anything for Edge anymore so we ended up shutting down the one-on-one -on -one tutoring um, and admissions counseling components in most of the offices the only office that is still really thriving and growing super fast is the one down in Latin America um, and we have a fantastic woman down there who manages everything um, we have a really robust group of great tutors but um, what we did, we ultimately decided to shut that down and keep the online SAT ACT prep component uh, up and running, and that's still doing really well. And I was super confident with the person who was managing that already. Um, but I knew that the things that I was managing, because everything moves so fast, with admittedly, I ended up not having the time or the bandwidth to hire someone, train them, and make sure that I was confident with their abilities. So it was an interesting transition year where we had to, you know have all these people calling in and saying, oh, oh, we don't do that anymore. Right. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. Can we talk, so let's talk about that, that things, things moving so fast with, with Admittedly. You already mentioned that you entered a, um, an accelerator that met sporadically. It was a really interesting model. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then you entered another accelerator. Yeah. Uh, so, what, were the, what, was the dif- what was the difference between those accelerators? And tell us about the accelerator experience. I again, I don't think we've had anyone yet talk about an accelerator. Um, you know, what is that like? What were you hoping to get out, out of it? Did you get yeah. what you wanted out of it? Um, yeah. So the second, so the first accelerator we did was called First Growth. It was the super low key, low maintenance, low maintenance um, program. We met once a month for about six months. Um, they didn't invest any money and they didn't take any equity. Um, it was more educational, which was great, and we got to meet a ton of um, former entre- other entrepreneurs and mentors and just really great people. It was very 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 helpful. Um, the second accelerator we did was called Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator, um, or ERA, which is also based in New York. And that was more of an intensive program. It was a four-month program where you have to work out of their office. You're there every day. Every day they have um, meetings set up with you and talks and uh, programming. And so it's super, super hyper-scheduled. You feel like you're kind of in running in a million directions. Um, but that was great for us because it just kept us focused and it was really nice to be surrounded by other entrepreneurs who were also pushing so hard so you're not you know, working out of an office where everyone's checking out at 5 o'clock um, during the summer and going out to the Hamptons. They're all there grinding it out till midnight. And so that was, was really great. Um, it was incredibly helpful for us in terms of raising our funding round because I was able to meet so many different investors through that program, who um, many of whom came into our seed round. Um, what I would recommend for anyone thinking about an accelerator, and something that I definitely think was a mistake of ours, is I think we joined a little too early, um, because I think the, a lot of what you can get out of these accelerators is people and mentors meeting with you and giving you product feedback. Um, and talking about growth strategies and um, looking at your marketing messages and talking about your conversion rates and looking at the different levers that are your problem points um, and brainstorming how to fix them. But we didn't have a product. So anytime I met with a mentor who had this incredible product experience, they're looking at wireframes, you know, or they're just looking at designs on a piece of paper or on a screen. So they couldn't, I couldn't say, well, our landing page is only converting at 22%. Um, we really need to get, we want to get that up to 35%. Like, let's, you know, really dive deep and figure out how. So we didn't have any data. So that's definitely something where I, if I were to do it all over again, I would definitely join an accelerator with an actual product. So you joined that accelerator with a proposal? Yes, with a PowerPoint. (laughs) With a PowerPoint. (laughs) That I look at now and cringe because it was an awful PowerPoint. (laughs) And... Uh, I'll skip what's so awful with PowerPoint, I guess. <laughs> unless, you, unless you, yeah. Why not? What's so awful with PowerPoint? I mean, <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not a designer, <laughs> and <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Just to, visually, it's, it's visually just. It's visually a mess. There's way too many things on the page. It's not as focused. The story isn't as clear. I mean, it's been through about 79 iterations. Right. So it's just night and day. There's no branding on there. It's just, it looks vintage. It was just a big idea. It was a big idea. And I think, 
um, in the early days, I actually didn't bring the PowerPoint out. I would just talk to people. <laughs> I would rarely, rarely take out my computer in meetings, <laughs> and I would just kind of have a conversation and tell the story and tell the vision. Um, so yeah, that PowerPoint didn't really see much light. <laughs> right. Okay. But but yeah, it got you into the accelerator. But yeah. And, sorry, and, and how long was the accelerator? We launched. We started June third of two thousand. Uh, 13, and then we, we went through the end of September. Right. And so you said it, it introduced you to some of your investors. So if you had this PowerPoint <laughs> that, you, that you're gradually owning up to, yeah. uh, and no product, um, <clears throat> and you're going through this incubator, how are you connecting with, inv- I mean, you raised a, a million three? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you connecting with, um, with investors without, I guess, what investors are kind of expecting? Um, so I think when you are looking at, when an investor is looking at seed companies, they can analyze it in a couple of different ways. Um, and I think that the the reason why they gave us the benefit of a doubt without a product is because I had so much domain experience and I had worked with this exact population before. So it wasn't like I was working at Goldman Sachs, had you know a big idea for a problem, but had never worked in you know fashion, and then went into fashion. And it's hard for an investor to wrap their heads around whether or not you can actually do it. And most pe- many people do that. You know, they leave consulting or they leave banking or business school and they go and they knock it out of the park. But that's definitely a bet where a VC would probably want to see some sort of traction to make sure that it's not just a big idea solving a problem that they're having um, and that they could actually execute it. But I think the the reason why we were really successful raising money early on was because I had done a business before. It was successful. So I had the, the wherewithal of running a company. Um, and I knew this market in and out. And I had a lot of kind of IP that I had built up in terms of our curriculum that other entrepreneurs in the space who were just coming at it from business schools didn't necessarily have. How many? How many? Um, in, how many investors did you did you were you in front of before you closed your round, your first round? Oh, I don't know, uh, a lot. Do you, <laughs> we, have, you have a good hit rate, or you about what do you think is normal? I don't know what's normal. I know that we met. I met with a ton of people through that accelerator. So in the accelerator, they bring investors in almost every day, and you meet with them regardless of whether or not that investor only invests in enterprise or they only invest in super high tech um, or they don't even invest in ed tech at all. So I've definitely met with a lot of investors who would just never even think to invest in us. Um, so it was probably, I had a list of about 120 people who I had met with. But wow. Yeah, a lot of meetings, but a lot of those meetings were more just like, hey, let's get to know you. Giving me feedback on my pitch or giving me, um, you know, perspective on what they look for. Um, And so a lot of them weren't necessarily serious pitches because we weren't in their target space. But I would say of the serious pitches, we, um, it was about 75. In addition to the 120? No, no, no. 75 of the 120 were serious pitches. Were serious pitches. And then ultimately you picked about five no. Five funders? No. We this have a f- lot of investors. Okay. We have 30. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So five, I guess the site I checked out had five or I don't know. Yeah. So we have five major. Five. Okay. Yeah. There's five major investors, like okay. VCs or, or very, very serious angels. But then we've had a lot of other angels come in. Gotcha. Um, 
So yeah, it was a hustle. <laughs> how do you manage that rowdy group of uh, of thirty investors, and how many of them are seeking to, to to give you their input on a regular basis? Oh, there's a lot of input. Um, people are very opinionated, especially people who have high school students who have right. a lot of perspective on the process, but m might not have the perspective of our target student, which might not be a student at a very elite private school. Um, so it's really interesting hearing <laughs> a lot of their perspectives. Some of them are awesome. I mean, most of them are who give their opinions are awesome, and it's really helpful. Um, some aren't, uh, and some are super quiet, and I really, I rarely hear from them, and they're just, you know, whenever I send updates, they're like, go get them, or awesome, or this is great, two thumbs up. <laughs> so it's a, a wide array. How did you determine that $1.3 million was, was the right amount? Would you have kept going? Could you have stopped earlier? What did, what, what did, where did $1.3 million get you to? Um, our target was 1.2. So um, one point, we had a, a kind of final person coming in for an extra 100 where I just really liked what they were doing and um, thought that they would be a value add. So we, we added um, to that. And it was based on, um, so with when you're raising your seed round, you want to get to a certain metric that makes you comfortable um, in terms of either raising your next round or getting to profitability or to proving something. So in terms of what we wanted to prove is the big bet was, can we build uh, an educational product that we're going to sell direct to consumer rather than selling into high schools? And can we build an educational product that high school students would actually engage with in competition with Snapchat and Yik Yak and every other um, social app that they're on? And and can we scale it? So we knew that because of the seasonality of our business and the fact that there's only one application season a year and one point in the year where students find out where they got in, it wasn't something where we could say, oh, you know, in any given month we can answer those questions. It was more of an annual. So we wanted to raise enough to give us about 18 to 24 months of runway to really prove things out in the market. We're in unusual times right now where there can be pressure to remain pre-revenue. How are you balancing that? Do investors, are investors putting pressure on you to turn on the revenue switch? Are they putting pressure on you to keep the revenue switch off? Where are you right now with that? So our investors' perspectives run the gamut of um, turning the revenue switch on now. Uh, some wanted us to turn it on a year ago. Some of them think that we shouldn't turn it on for another year. So it really crosses the, the it spans the whole spectrum there. Um, one of the things, though, that I would say is that a lot of our investors wanted us to start selling our students' data as leads um, because that's very easy revenue. Um, a lot of schools out there are hungry for students' email addresses because they want more students to apply, not only because they get revenue from application fees, but also because they're adding more students to the funnel to hopefully get them to convert into an enrolled student. So they pay a lot of money for these leads um, on average, you know, four to ten dollars per email address and if you think about it if we have a student and our average student is interested in nine schools on our website we could potentially sell that email address nine times so nine times ten that's 90 bucks per email address that we have so that's already a very very big business um, but from our perspective because we have these really strong company values of being a student focused and um millennial uh, brand that's super transparent, that definitely doesn't really jive with 
our brand identity. Um, and yes, it would have been nice to have all of that money in our bank. Um, I don't think it would, in the long term, be the right decision for us because then all of our students would say, oh, you join admittedly and then you get spammed with all of these colleges, brochures and emails and they stalk you and you shouldn't use admittedly. And then the next year we wouldn't see the 50,000 students joining in October. Sounds um, like that was a very di- was not a very difficult decision to no, make. No, it wasn't difficult for me. It was difficult in, a, in the sense of kind of trying to explain that to certain investors who felt very passionately about that. Right. Um, and then there's other investors who think that the best way to building a billion dollar business is through just growth, 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 growth. Um, But the thing that I think is really important for entrepreneurs is that there's nobody that's going to know their business better than the the CEO and the founder. Um, Because you're living it, you know it, there's a gut feeling that you get as to when you need to turn revenue on, what is the the thing that is going to bring you revenue as it adds is your product always going to be free is it a premium you know what is it um in, and your, in your case what is that revenue <laughs> what is that revenue model when you finally turn it on yeah so, so the revenue model for us is uh, direct to consumer it's a freemium model um where students can upgrade um for premium access in our app through an in-app purchase and uh yeah, I, I think that for us, the growth story would be fantastic, and I think we are showing really great growth. Um, we're showing right now on our app, which just launched a month ago, um, greater than 50% um, increases per month, which is awesome, especially given that it's summer, and I don't know why students are actually using our app in summer, because they should be outside and doing really fun things, but they're using our app, which is great. Um, but. For, for the reason for us where I don't necessarily want to only rely on the growth story is that um, we are, are a very seasonal business. So every time someone graduates from high school, they're most likely going to drop off of our app. So the growth story is nice for a year, and then you have to start all over again. So it's not necessarily something like a Facebook or a Snapchat or any of these big companies that sell on growth where they can keep a customer forever, technically. You know, we have to keep doing that every year. So it really, in my mind, makes more sense to monetize now versus just waiting because all of these people that we're acquiring now, we get zero dollars in lifetime value if we don't monetize on them. Just trying to think of the application of uh, some way to keep these people on when they're well, we have internship some, uh, matching we, process. Yeah, or? I mean, we have some ideas I'm sure in you the have pipeline. Those ideas. I'm sure this yeah. is not like, wow, Jeremy, thanks for, uh, thanks for <laughs> you really turned on the light bulb for me there. No, with that I mean, there's the, the <laughs> vision for the company is right now what we're doing is we're helping students find the best college for them um, or the best colleges that they should have on their their list and giving them a step-by-step process of all the things they need to do to improve their chances of getting in throughout high school. Where we want to go, kind of down in the funnel, we want to expand to say rather than starting off with which school is the best for you, we want to start with a question is a four-year college right for you? Because there are so many different opportunities for students for post-secondary education um, or training or things like a gap year or an apprenticeship or an internship even. Um, And a four-year college right after high school might not be right for everyone. So we want to be the platform where students join and we help them understand which path is right. And then we want to build out the curriculum for each of those different paths and then expand on the back end for students once they're in that program and say, okay, great, once you're in college, that's not 
the end. That's the beginning. That's where you have to say, you know, you what you put into college is directly correlated with what you're going to get out of it. It's not about the degree. It's about the education. Um, and you have to work for the education. And Imagining a bunch of kids getting a getting recommendations to take a gap year and you having <laughs> thousands of irate parents on your hands. I yeah. know my parents would have been, I think I would have benefited from a gap year. And my parents I, I think a gap year is great. We've had a lot of students from EDGE actually take a gap year. And I think that when they start uh, college, it they are just so much more mature and just like have so much... Uh, more of an interesting perspective on the world and about what they like doing and what they're passionate about because they have this kind of break where they get to just kind of enjoy and explore. For sure. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. I read an article that I, I'm moving up this question. I read an article uh, in Forbes the other day, and you were kind of talking about what is important to students and what's not. And it seems like some of the things that we that we as a society believe to be important, rankings, uh, prestige, etc., are are not as important to the average uh, student as we would think. Are we ever going to be in a world where the prestige is diminished? And and, and do you think, in your experience dealing with all these people and all these young people, is is there a correlation between school and 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 success? Um, I think that there's there's definite there's more of a correlation with the amount of effort a student puts in because I've seen so many students who are just average students who end up getting into Ivy League schools because of one reason or another, like they might have done just really amazingly on an SAT and they might have been real, real grinders in high school. And then once they get into these Ivy Leagues, I'll stay in touch with them. And then they're just not really doing anything. They're average and they come out and they're not getting great opportunities because they have a B minus average. And even though there's a Princeton or an Ivy League stamp on their resume, that might get them an interview, but it's not getting them the job, and it's definitely not getting them a promotion. Whereas I also see kids who are just superstars, and they put in so much effort, and they're at average schools, and they come out and they're rock stars. So I think it comes down to more about how much effort a student's putting in versus, you know, if you go to this school, you are going to get job and and that is definitely something where I feel very passionately about when a lot of people are having these what's the ROI on college conversation um, I don't think it's something that you can commoditize um, you know you buy a car that's a commodity there's a value to it um, but with college the the difference between a college and a car is that the value of a degree isn't really worth anything unless you actually do the work to get it. So you have to do work in order to get the value out of this commodity. So it's not necessarily a car where you can just take the keys and it has value. So that's where I, I think that when people get all up in a huff about, oh, what's ROI? How much is, is that person going to make? It's so dependent on what their degree is, what their major is, where they're living. And, and also, nobody's talking about whether the kid's going to be happy. Like, some people are not inclined towards computer programming 
And if you're just saying, like, everybody should be a computer programmer, what about the happiness, you know, quotient? You know, that's one of our fundamental rights, the pursuit of happiness. So I think that we have to sort of take a step back and and not be so quantitative about it. Speaking of happiness, um, (laughs) (laughs) we... We, you have a team of four. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about how you kind of keep that culture going um, and, and, and keep a, a really tight-knit team. But that's a bit of a precarious situation to be in when you've got four people. How do you ensure, because if one person walks out the door, that's you know a huge part of your team leaving. Yeah. I hope your team doesn't listen to the podcast and, and hear that and start trying sure to try to pressure you. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you how do you deal with that risk and how do you, how do you keep people happy on your small team? And I know you've got about nine interns as well. Yeah, we do. have an army. Yeah, you've got an intern army. Okay. <laughs> uh, so how do you keep everyone happy and how do you deal with that risk? Um, I think that. It's for me, one of the things that I do is I meet with every one of them, um, and there's not that many, uh, <laughs> once a month for about 45 minutes, grab a coffee and just chat um, and get an idea of whether they're happy with the job, what's going on in their lives, anything exciting, and just make sure I have that alone time with them to just have them give the ability to voice any concerns that they're having, any issues, or whether or not they are not learning something that they want to be learning or they're not doing something that they're not doing that they're that they want to be doing or they're not feeling challenged or or just anything. So I feel like I know exactly what they're feeling because I'm super open um, and I have the and I have them scheduled into our our calendar every month. Um, so I have a, my finger on the pulse of what's going on. Interns included, do they get the 45 minutes too? Uh, they don't get 45 minutes, but they get like a half hour. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this summer is like just having coffee all day. <laughs> Actually tea. But um, yeah, so I, I definitely know what it is that their concerns are and they're really, really honest with me. But yeah, I mean, opportunities come along all the time, especially for... Um, the type of employees that I have. So of the four of us, I'm the only non-technical, non-design person. So we have two developers and we have a designer. So that is definite. Those positions are such hot commodities in New York that Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a ton of opportunities. But I think what is great is that it is really familial. We have a great culture. But also, um, one of the benefits that we have that a lot of companies don't is that we are so mission-driven. Our mission is to help people have the best possible future. Um, so it doesn't get more mission-driven than that. Um, there's obviously much hotter startups out there where it's trendy and it's cool. But I think for the people who we hire, that is such an important component of why they picked us, um, that it makes it really, really enjoyable. and. The other thing is I let them see all of our customer service emails, um, especially the the happy ones, because when they get an email from and they get to see an email from a student who is going to a school that they're happy with, that is really, really rewarding, knowing that they built the product that helped the student get there. Speaking of the team, so <laughs> when I met you, there were uh, there were two co-founders, and yeah. um, there was a co-founder split, and I I, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could share some of the takeaways and lessons from that that you picked up from starting a, starting a, a company with someone else, and and ultimately, you know, dissolving that partnership. Yeah, um, I. I think so for from my perspective I think starting a company with someone is so much more rewarding than starting it alone because when you're just a solo founder and you have nobody to kind of 
bounce ideas off of and you have nobody to talk through the problems with. It's definitely a really lonely boat that you're in. Um, so I really valued my time with my co-founder, Emily, um, and thought that our um, early days were just really fun, really, really challenging, and really great, and her perspective was awesome. I think because we started the company so fast, what we didn't necessarily do was really step back and say, okay, you know, what are the things that you're going to own, and what are the things that I'm going to own? And do we each have the skill set and the background to actually own them? And not only own them, but knock them out of the park. Um, because it's not in a startup with four people or at the time three people. It's not just filling a, bot, a seat. It's you need to be the best person ever at something. And if you're not, you need to learn it because we need everything done and we only have two people. So um, we never really divided it. It was more just like, let's get everything done. Like, let's hire. Let's get benefits. Let's do this. And we're all, we just had a, a thousand item to do list and we got through it. But we never once we got through the early days, it was like, oh, OK, now that we're kind of in our zone what are you going to do and what can you take off my plate and I think that we got into a situation where she was doing a lot of things that she just didn't enjoy doing and it definitely translated into the quality of the work that she was doing so we ended up splitting amicably she is um, working at a, a private school in New York City and super happy with her new job and definitely still in touch but I would say to really really iron out what your roles are um, before going down the co-founder route. So who, who serves that purpose for you now? If you have a tough decision to make, who do you bounce those ideas off without that co-founder to who really owns it and feels it the same way that you do? Um, I would say the uh, the non-official, the unofficial board board chairman, which would be my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so every we have board meetings every night. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. So he's on G chat all day. He's on my my phone. We're chatting about this at night. We're chatting about it on the weekend. Is he a startup guy? No, but he has just does good judgment. He has really great judgment, and he runs his own hedge fund, so he kn understands the woes of managing investors, um, launching things, you know, legal contracts, and just kind of things of that nature. Um, so yeah, he's super helpful. And then I have, just from more of a startup kind of zone, I have this group of female founders that I have over to my apartment, um, like once a month, once every other month, just to kind of talk in a space where you don't have to be painting a very like rainbows and butterflies picture to everyone. Um, and that is awesome because you can say like, hey, like, how do you hire someone? What are the questions you, am you ask them to really make sure that you're not gonna hire them, uh, the wrong person? You know? And how do you do this? And it's a great space to kind of vent, get your questions answered where you know that you don't have to be on per se. That is really cool. I'll have to, <clears throat> to go through this list of female founders that are at your place and yeah. try and draft some of them onto the podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm um, sure they would love it. This has been really interesting and has really added, we're trying to get a diversity of companies, and this is, I, I should probably stop making these pronouncements <laughs> live because I might be forgetting something, but I believe this is the first ed tech company um, awesome. that we've had. I think, you know, one of two seed stage companies that we've had. So I think this really adds to the uh, mosaic that we are putting together yeah. here at the VFA podcast. So oh, that's great. Thanks so much for being here. And 
with the story still being written, I hope to have you back. I hope you'll come back and Yay. keep us updated when you're at 250 and then 500 and a million users. Ultimately, and then 16. ultimately that's 16. 6. There we go. You scooped yeah. me. 16.6 <laughs> at the end. Thanks so much, Jess. Thanks so much. is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.